0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you with hearts of gratitude, Lord, for all that you've done, for bringing us here safely, for giving us a place to meet, for giving us your word. The miracle of having the word of God in our own hands, in our own language that we can just savor and enjoy and study and apply, is immense. And we thank you for that great gift. And as Tim prayed, we pray for those in Houston that even right now are trying to sort out what their lives mean after such a thing. And uh, we pray that you would bless them, Lord. We pray that you would work in their lives in a surprising way, that that they could find what so many uh, saints, believers have found in the past, that you work through these things for their good. And we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm really excited to uh, start a new series in the book of Galatians. We're calling it Finally Free because we're praying that God will use this book of Galatians to give us the liberating power of the gospel. The gospel is a message of freedom. It's a message of freedom from having to pay the penalty for your own sin. It's a message um, of freedom from bondage to those sin patterns. It's a message of freedom from that kind of relentless human urge to prove our own worth and try to earn our own acceptance. And Galatians is a great letter to go to to find that kind of freedom. Now, this letter was written in, in about 48 A.D. And I was just thinking about that this week. We have a letter written by Paul from 48 A.D. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is a 1,969-year-old letter, and yet we have it. And we have many different manuscripts of this so that we can compare together, and we have good certainty that this is exactly what he wrote. And in the first verse here, we see that Paul is a, was an apostle. Uh, the apostles were a very small number of people in the first century. They were commissioned directly by Jesus. That's why he says in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Um, Paul's saying that he as an apostle was appointed not by men or through men. Um, and this is an important thing. Um, it's an important distinction between, say, a pastor and an apostle. An apostle was appointed directly by the resurrected Jesus, um, by Jesus himself appointed apostles. Pastors, though, are different. Pastors are also called by God to serve the church, but they're called through human agency. When he says through man, uh, uh, pastors are called by God, but that calling is evidenced through uh, human beings appointing them. Okay, And that's an important difference. Apostles were were appointed directly by the risen Christ. And then apostles, as they were starting to get older and as they knew that their time was was elapsing and that they weren't going to be around much longer, they didn't appoint more apostles. They appointed pastors and elders. And you can see that in 1 Timothy or in Titus. You see that there's criteria. When he tells Titus or Timothy to go out there and find pastors for the churches, he gives them lists of criteria and they were to go and look for those. And then those pastors... In turn, appointed pastors, appointed pastors, all the way down to last week. We were able to appoint David and Josh as uh, pastors of this church. You, the body of Christ, saw their gifting and their character and recommended them, and then we as a church appointed them. But that's a process, unlike the apostle, that's a process through men. It's through God's people, through the church. And Paul's saying here, though, that as apostles, they weren't chosen that way. And apostles were few in number and very high in authority. They, have an author- they had an authority that, that no pastor has today. Um, there are no apostles today because Jesus isn't going around appointing uh, apostles anymore. We just have pastors. And the authority of the apostles is where? It's in this book. It's in the recorded teachings of the apostles. So you wonder, where is that authority that Paul and all those guys had? It resides now here in God's word. And so uh, a pastor doesn't have Uh, Any authority over you, aside from pointing to you what God's Word says, the authority is in the Word of God, not in the person. And and this letter was written to the Galatians. Now, Galatia is a Roman province. It was a Roman province in the area that's now uh, Turkey. And this was written, you can see, to several churches. It says, to the churches of Galatia. And the tone of this letter, with the tone, as Jim was reading it, could you tell the tone of this letter? The tone of this letter is urgent, Okay, the tone of this letter is alarming, sometimes angry. Paul actually skips the initial uh, thanksgiving section in this to get right to a stinging rebuke. He doesn't start off with "Hey, I'm like he does in all his other letters." Hey, I'm so thankful for your faith and what God's doing in your life. Totally skips that, goes straight for a rebuke, and we can see that in verse nine. He says, "I'm astonished." that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but some who want to trouble and distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be a curse. That word means damned. As we said before, so we say now, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be a curse. You think, that escalated quickly, didn't it? You know, it opens with a little like, hi, I'm Paul, and hey, grace and peace to you. And then, boom, he lowers this stinging rebuke. What's got Paul so intense? He's he. This letter is abrupt, it's intense, it signals his deep distress. It's because, guys, he's very uncertain about the people he's writing to. He's uncertain about where they are spiritually. Have you guys ever had somebody that you loved that you felt really uncertain about where they were spiritually? You know, you had a pretty sure thought about their faith before, but now they seem to kind of be slipping away from the Lord. That's what's happening here. And Paul's deeply unsettled by it. He's wound up because only a year after he planted these churches, he gets word back that some other people have come in, and they're, they're preaching a false gospel, a gospel of, of works in faith, not just of faith, and they're distorting the gospel message, and they're, what he's seeing is he's hearing from people that they're deserting the gospel. You might ask yourself, what is the gospel? What does it mean? The word gospel, Evangelion, is the, a word that means good news. Gospel means good news. In the first century context, the word gospel was often used of big good news that would affect everyone. One example would be if there was a new emperor... New emperors coming. There'd be a lot of like, uh, you know, hype about that. Like, he's gonna come. He's gonna make everything right. You know, everything's gonna be great. You know, that would be a gospel. It would be a good news about a new emperor who has ascended to the throne. It might be used of major victories. So you're at war with another country, and you get this word back that we've 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 had this great victory. They're no longer invading. That would be a gospel message, right? That a great victory had been won on our behalf. The cool thing is, is in the gospel of Jesus, we have both. We have the good news through the, that the death and resurrection has secured our greatest victory over sin and death. And we also have the good news of a king that's ascended, a new emperor. We have, we have the good news that Jesus Christ is ascended and is reigning as king. And that his kingdom is one day going to invade and renew this entire world. And so that's what we mean when we say good news. And what Paul's hearing is that after he proclaimed the good news to them, about a year later, some other people came in and started distorting that message and giving them a different message. And so Paul, what he's doing in the book of Galatians, is he's calling them back to the good news he preached in the beginning. He's saying, go back to the one I preached in the beginning. That was the the word that that the apostles preached. That's the word you need to go back to. And it's a message that can't be altered. Look at verse 8. This is powerful. He says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, came and preached to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. Isn't that amazing? He's like, we can't even come back and alter this. We came, we gave you the gospel, we went away, I'm writing to you now a couple years later, um, I'm, and, and it better be the same message. you know. He says, even if an angel came, and we have religions like that. You think of Islam, you think of Mormonism, both of them say that an angel came and fixed the gospel, you know. Set things right. Uh, brought the real news. He's saying this is an unalterable message. You know, this is something as Jude says. It's once and for all delivered to the saints. How can we? How can we know what that message is? You know, Paul preached some sort of message years later. He's writing Galatians. Well, he actually gives it to us in verse three. He actually reminds them right away what the gospel is. He says, "This is the gospel." This is right before he rebukes him, Gives them the gospel. And then he rebukes him from walking away from it. What can we learn from from verses 3 through 5 about what the gospel is? Let me read it for you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom belong glory forever and ever. Amen. We can look at this really short statement, and we can actually get the significant points of the gospel. First, the gospel message is about rescue. You see that there? He says that the Lord gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That word deliver, exerio, is a word that can mean either deliver or rescue. And I was just thinking about it this week. Like, the word rescue, when you think of the word rescue, that is an awesome gospel word, isn't it? It's a beautiful gospel word. What is the gospel about? It's about rescue, right? It's about rescue. You know, we think about the, the hurricane and stuff that's been hitting the Houston area. You could imagine in the early hours... Um, some people would have only needed advice, right? They could have had advice. The storm's coming. Here's where you need to go to. Here's how to get your stuff out. You know, you just need some good advice. But later, guys, there were people that were caught off guard, and they had to be rescued, right? Their situation at that point was so dire um, that the only thing that no advice would help them, right? You could send them advice. You could tell them, hey, here's the way. But there's no way for them to save themselves. That's us, guys. We don't need advice. We need rescue, and the gospel is a good news about rescue. It's, it's as if we're on the rooftop, the water is continuing to rise, and we need to be rescued. And it's even worse than that because I think a lot of you guys will admit you fought the rescuer. So here you are in need of rescue. He comes to rescue you and you're like, no, 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 I don't need this. You know, and eventually he conquered um, that resistance of yours. The gospel is the good news about rescue, not about advice for self-help. That's not what we need. Guys, other religious leaders, they came just to teach and to give advice. Jesus came to rescue because we didn't just need teaching and advice. We needed rescue. Secondly, the gospel is about substitution. Take a look at verse 3. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Um, That gave himself for our sins. That's substitution. The gospel is about Jesus being substituted for us. Guys, on the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us for our sins. Why was this needed? Well, human beings were created by God, good, and greatly loved by God. We were made to live in happy dependence upon God and under his good and loving reign. Um, and, and yet, we didn't want that, right? We wanted to rule for ourselves. We wanted, to, um, we wanted to be king, right? You know, there's a Tom Petty song. It's good to be king, just for a while, to be there in velvet to give him a smile, you know? It, we wanted to be king. We wanted to be king of our own lives. And that's sin, Sin is us trying to place ourselves on God's throne. We try to substitute ourselves for God. Um, And and that sin has to be paid for. The good news of the gospel, though, guys, in verse 3, is that he gave himself for our sins. It's substitution. John Stott said this. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, right? We tried to be in God's place. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserted himself against God and put himself where only God deserved to be. And God sacrificed himself for man, putting himself where only man deserved to be. The gospel is about substitution. And guys, that substitution is specific. If he's going to be your substitute, he's specifically your substitute. It isn't that Jesus died on the cross to get a general ability to forgive general sins from general people. He went there and paid your specific debt. Colossians says that it was your certificate of debt, your rap sheet, that got nailed on the cross through Jesus. Isn't that awesome? It's specific. And because it's specific, if you're trusting in Jesus, there's no way you could ever end up paying for your sins because there's no double jeopardy. You know double jeopardy is, right? A crime's been paid for, it can't be paid for again. If you're in Christ, it's been paid for. There's no double jeopardy. And notice, too, that it was voluntary. He says that he gave himself. He wasn't taken. You know, when we look at the cross, when we watch the Passion of the Christ or something, you could get the impression that maybe Jesus is a victim. He's not a victim, he's a volunteer. He substituted himself. In John, he says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. He substitutes. The gospel's about substitution. The gospel is also a message about new creation. Look again at verse 3. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That term present evil age is kind of interesting. It was the thing that stuck out to me the most when I started studying this passage. I'm like, what is that? You know? Well, what that is, that idea of a present evil age, it connects to the Judaism of that time. And they believe there were two phases to history. There was kind of the present evil age. It was an age characterized by sin and death and and disease and all those kind of things. And that there was going to be a new age of salvation and renewal and new creation. And they believe that God was going to do something decisive in history to flip the switch to the new age of, of life and renewal and new creation. And guys, God has done that. He has ushered in an age of new creation through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus He's rescued us from. The gospel, guys, is the good news of Jesus' victory and reign as king. And that one day he's going to bring his kingdom in and eliminate all sin and death and suffering. And it's already started to some degree now. The kingdom's here already, not yet. It's already started in you. Uh, When we think of new creation, you can remember what Paul said, right? He said, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. It begins inside of you as he's renewing you and making you new on the inside. Eventually, that new creation is going to spread to the physical creation and your physical bodies. He's going to make things new. We've been rescued from this present evil age. Our future doesn't belong to this present evil age. Our future belongs to God's new creation. And our future is going to be freedom from death, sin, and judgment. It's awesome news. And so this part gets to kind of there's the personal aspect of the, the, the gospel. This gets to the global aspect that he's gonna make all things new. Um, I was just thinking about it. You know, we watch our world, and as you know, the problems mount in our world, you start to think like this world is crumbling, this world is coming apart, this is this is a present evil age. It makes sense, right? And as that age Appears to be dawning. It appears to be um, the sun appears to be setting on that world. It's dawning for us. The end of this evil age will be the beginning of the new age for us. Um, the gospel is also a message that glorifies God, not us. I think this is super important and underemphasized. Look at verse four. It says, "He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father." So this is the Father involved. We talked about the Son's involvement. This is the Father's plan. To whom belong glory forever and ever. Amen. Guys, if the gospel is a message about uh, Jesus paying the penalty of our sin, being substituted on the cross for us to give us the new creation, then it's a plan that's been entirely hatched and, and executed by God. The gospel is something done completely by God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does it all by Himself with no help from you, as Kenny was saying a couple of weeks ago. All by himself, with no help for you, and that's why he gets all the glory for it. Because man-made religions give the 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 human beings the glory, right? The ones that have done the right things to earn it and turned their lives around and done good things and you know reformed themselves, right? But the gospel is a message about something that only God did, and only God gets the glory. So verse five says, "To whom be glory forever and ever, Amen." Human religions uh, always magnify us right? The gospel magnifies God. So why is it so urgent? You know, you think about this letter and you think about Paul and he comes in super urgent, I'm astonished and accursed, and he's using all this strong language. And you might think to yourself, why is it important for us to study a book like this? What we learn from the opening here is that Christians have an urgent need to be reminded of the gospel. Does that surprise you? Christians have an urgent need to be reminded of the gospel. So we're going to spend a couple months in Galatians doing that. Why do we need to be reminded of the gospel? For the same reasons they did. I mean, it might not be as dramatic. There might not have been somebody that came into your life and is telling you a different gospel. But you could start to believe one even on your own, right? Why do we need to be reminded of the gospel? First, we need to be reminded of the gospel because we're quick to drift from it. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ, and turn to another gospel. Paul's like, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> I left you guys alone for a year. You know, I spent all that time with you, and, and emphasized the gospel to you. I leave, and you've deserted. Paul's saying, it's astonishing how quickly it happened. Aren't you guys, though, if you think about it, aren't you astonished about how quickly you drift from the gospel? Could you drift in a day? Could you drift in an hour? Could you drift in your car on the way home? <laughs> you could, right? We are quick to drift, just like these people are. We need to be reminded of the gospel, guys, because the default mode of the human heart is to trust in our own goodness for acceptance with God, isn't it? That's the default mode, you know? That's like the, the settings that we are born with, is to think that somehow our goodness is what gets us acceptance before God. And even though we've heard the gospel a bunch of times, we drift back to that. We go, no, 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 I need to do something to complete this or hold on to it or maintain it. It's like, no, this is all of God. Well, you know, there's this wrestling that goes back and forth. It's the default mode of our heart. And when we think that way, it either creates pride or despair, depending on how well we think we're doing. Okay? Right? So if you think you're doing really well at keeping God's standard and kind of maintaining your own salvation and maybe, you know, lifting the load with him a little bit and helping him to rescue you, then you feel pretty prideful and judgmental, you know? Most of the time when Christians are prideful and judgmental towards other Christians or towards the world, it's because we've started to think slowly that we didn't get rescued, right? When you're on the boat and you get rescued, you don't look at the people on the housetops and think, slackers, <laughs> right? You don't think that at all, right? You think like, praise God I was rescued. They need rescue too. We're in the same situation, Right? You know, but if you start to think that you actually responded in some way to God's word and got yourself cleaned up and and you've somehow earned what you've got, then you start to be judgmental. And the the opposite happens, though, too. When you're more realistic about your performance, right? You will, and see how poorly you're doing, you'll be tempted to be um, condemned. Maybe question your salvation, feel crushed, right? And so we can go back and forth between these things. The inferiority complex that we can have of where we you know, doubt whether we're even saved or we, um, you know, we're, we're crushed by our sin and we're not convicted, but I mean just kind of destroyed by it. We walk around feeling condemned. And the superiority complex of looking at other people and saying, why can't they get it together? They have the same root. The same root. It's both looking to our own righteousness. That's the default mode of the, of the Christian's heart. That's the way we are. That's the way we come. Uh, Richard Lovelace says this, much that we have interpreted as a defect in sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearings with respect to the gospel. He's saying, really, that's the place to look at first. (laughs) When they're having trouble growing, when we're having trouble with sin and things like that, that's where you need to look at first. He says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, and a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. And they come to naturally hate other cultural styles and other races in order order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. That puts an ugly picture on it, doesn't it? But that's what moralism produces. That's what legalism produces. It, It produces a radical insecurity and hatred and angst, about you, somehow, you got to kind of prove that you're good enough, you know? I mean, if it's about my merit to any degree, then I've got to always be looking at like who's a little lower than me to feel good about it. You know, I'm not doing that great in this area, but man, did you see that guy? Did you see what she's doing? You see that world out there, right? It's like a ladder. You got to step on somebody to move your way up, right? Um, we need to be reminded of the Gospels because we're so quick to drift from it. Astonishingly quick, according to verse 6. Luther said that the Gospel is something that's not easy for us to keep in our minds, and so we need to continually beat it into our heads, okay? (laughs) Continually beat it into our heads. Um, we need to be reminded of the gospel because you can't add anything to the gospel and still have the gospel. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's saying here, you can't add anything to the gospel, any other requirements for acceptance before God and still have the gospel. You're thinking, well, that sounds a little strict. Why is it so intense you like can't add one little extra requirement to the gospel to, for acceptance before God and it becomes not the gospel? Let me give you an example of where you wouldn't be strict about something like that. Drinking water, okay? You have a glass of drinking water. You can't add any amount of sewage to drinking water and still drinking water, right? You know, somebody might eject and go, no, no, it's still drinking water, it's the same glass of water. It's like, you know, you added two drops of sewage. It's only two drops it's no longer drinking water right it's the same with the gospel the gospel is that pure drinking water and if we try to add any bit of our own merit to it for for acceptance before god it's no longer the gospel it's because it's a message that god's done it all and that we accept it as a gift we receive it as a free gift And if you add any way of of gaining favor with God, you lose the gospel. That's what was happening in Galatia. You know, soon after Paul left, these other missionaries come in, these kind of legalistic missionaries, and they come in and they're pressuring those new Christians to undergo circumcision and to submit to the law of Moses to become real Christians. And you can imagine how this would happen. Paul comes in, he gives them a message that seems too good to be true. Just trust in Christ. He's done it all, right? It's a a message that seems too good to be true. And then in come these other guys, these these guys that were more legalistic, probably Jewish Christians, um, people that didn't really understand the gospel rightly, though. And they said this, you know, Paul didn't give you the whole story. He was right about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, but if you're going to benefit from a Jewish Messiah, doesn't it make sense that you'd have to become a little more Jewish yourself first? Right? Right? And see, you, you need to get circumcised. You need to keep this, this law of Moses. So it was a faith in Jesus plus observance of the law of Moses, plus the Torah. We call that legalism. We use the word legalism like crazy. You know, any time that somebody says, hey, you know, the Bible says you really should do this, you're like, oh, that sounds like legalism. That's not legalism, right? That's keeping God's commands. Uh, legalism, though, guys, is when we add anything to the gospel as our means of acceptance before God. Okay. So did Jesus do it all? Did he rescue us? Or do we somehow rescue ourselves through some other practice? These missionaries came to kind of complete Paul's converts, right? you got to complete them, you know? They weren't real Christians yet. They they knew about Jesus the Messiah, but they needed to be circumcised. They needed to start keeping God's law, uh, the Mosaic law, to be real Christians. And so the issue here is, is salvation and inclusion into God's family something God completes Alone and we receive as a gift, or is salvation something that we must somehow uh, complete through our own works? That's the question. And we all wrestle with legalism. You guys might not think you do, but you do. We all wrestle with legalism. We all start to think that our acceptance before God is contingent not just on Jesus, but on something we do. For example, some people think it's, you know, Jesus plus their sound doctrine. And there's people like that, that it's their sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is important. But when you look to it as your, your way of being justified before God and you judge others because you think, you know, well, you know, hell, oh, is that person a Christian? Yeah, they, real basic, real basic. They don't really understand some of the deep theological things we believe. What are you saying? They need to be completed, right? That's a partial Christian, right? Or the strength of our own faith. This one's a tricky one. Sometimes we can feel like our acceptance before God drops as our faith drops, now, we are connected to Jesus and receive the benefits of him by putting our trust in him, but it's not the level of our trust that saves us. Sometimes we can think that it's, it's the level of our faith that saves us. No, it's the object of your faith. It's the person you're putting your trust in that saves you. And this is really important to a person like me who wrestles with doubts, and my faith goes up and down big time. You know, when, my, when I'm wrestling with a lot of doubts and my faith is low, I could be tempted to think that somehow God's acceptance of me is lower. It doesn't work that way. Let me give you an example. Some of you guys wrestle with doubts and, and, and struggle with, with your faith. Um, let me give you an example of this. So two people board a plane. They get on a plane. They both get in the plane. They're getting the plane to take them to, say, Ohio or somewhere like that. Two people get in the plane. One person, completely confident in the plane, sleeps the whole way, loving it, right, excited to be on the plane. The other person had the faith to get on the plane, but the whole time is kind of biting their nails and stressed out, wondering if it's going to blow up on the way there, Okay? they both make it to their destination, right? Because it's all about being in the plane. If you've trusted in Jesus and you're in him, that's what matters. The level of your faith. Now, I'll admit, the second person is not going to have a fun time. <laughs> and it's no fun to be that person that's out it. But that person is no less secure than the person that's just kicking it back there, totally relaxed. We might start to think that, um, that our acceptance before God is Jesus plus our intensity of our commitment to him. That somehow his commitment goes down when our commitment goes down. You know, that happens in personal relationships, right? Your commitment to them goes down, theirs goes down. You know, they kind of match it. It's not that way with the Lord. His commitment's always going to be more than ours. Um, Or we could start to think that it's Jesus' work plus our service to his people, or our giving, or our evangelism, or our Bible reading, or our behavior, Guys, all those things matter. All those things are super important. All those things are a part of what it means to be a Christian, but none of them add to our acceptance before God. It's all Jesus. It's all what he's done on our behalf. Um, so those things are important, but they do not add to our acceptance. The gospel says that Jesus alone is our Savior. Legalism always makes your own performance your, to be your Savior. Legalism always makes your performance your Savior. You can't add to the gospel and solve the gospel uh, we need to be reminded of the gospel because if we lose the gospel, we lose God. I mean, I think that sounds pretty intense, but look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted him who called you, okay? He doesn't just say he left the, the gospel message. He says you've left God, right? You've left Christ. All roads don't lead home, right? And all messages don't le- lead to the real Jesus. Um, legalism doesn't lead to the real historical Jesus of the New Testament, The Jesus of the Bible will pay your entire way of salvation or none of it. That's the way he works. He will either pay your whole salvation or none. Any Jesus that you read about that is willing to let you pay part of your own way isn't the real one. To desert the gospel is to desert God. And that's why legalism has no power to transform. Yeah, legalistic people can be sometimes not religious, but sometimes they can be very religious people. Legalistic people can be very religious, but there's no power in it. There's no life in it because God isn't in it, right? Um, we need to be reminded of the gospel because other gospels aren't good news at all. <laughs> I love this. In 7, he says, not that there is another one. He goes, you guys have gone off to your different gospel. He's like, not that there is another one. What does gospel mean? It means good news. A legalistic gospel is by definition not a gospel because it's not good news, There's no good news in it, right? Legalism, a belief that Jesus plus my performance gets me acceptance before God is not good news to me at all. I will mess it up like instantly. How about you guys? If this is something that you need to earn part of or that you get the whole thing, but that you need to kind of keep it going and maintain it, how long is it going to last? You're going to drop it instantly, right? You're going to lose it instantly. It's not good news to people like me. Any salvation that depends on me at all is not good news. I am completely incompetent to save myself. That's what it means to be rescued. <laughs> you know, People that sit on the rooftops to get rescued, they're admitting they are completely incompetent to save themselves. That's what the gospel is, guys. The gospel shows us that. Any other gospel, any other legalistic message is not good news to people like us. We need to be reminded of the gospel because there are some out there trying to actively distort it. Look at verse 7. It says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. That's interesting. And want to distort the gospel of Christ. These false teachers, guys, what they want to do is they want to somehow stand in front of the offer of free grace and charge admission. So these people... It's crazy. These people were like, they're not in the center of Rome. They're out in kind of the boonies, right? Paul comes there, and he tells them, like, there's this Messiah. He's died to pay for your sins. You'll be welcomed into God's family just by trusting in him. This is an offer of free grace. And they're like, we don't know anything about that. All the religion we've ever known, we got to, you know, buy sacrificial animals, or we need to do these certain things. And he's like, nope, doesn't work like that. Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice. He's done it all for you. Just trust in him. And you'll be welcomed into his family. And they're like, well, we heard that he was Jewish. What's the deal? You'll be welcomed into God's family. Family just by believing in Him. They're like, oh, this is too good to be true. This is amazing." And they receive it, and they form churches. and then these false teachers they come, and they, they, they try to kind of set up shop in front of this free offer of grace, this free gospel to all, and they want to charge a mission. And that's what man-made religions do, guys. You know, false teachers do that. They want to charge admission. Sometimes they make a lot of money doing it, you know. Um, there's things that they put ahead of the gospel. For these false teachers, the price of admission was foreskins, right, festival keeping, food laws. I mean, the currency changes, the charges are different, but man-made religions always charge in some way for something that Jesus died to give us for free. And so he's saying there's people out there that want to distort this, and that's why you need to be reminded of the gospel. Um, He says here that those false teachers are out to trouble you. Isn't that interesting? Trouble you. Because the false gospel, the legalistic gospel, is always troubling, isn't it? It always creates guilt and insecurity and fear and steals joy. And so we need to be reminded of the gospel because of that. So what we're going to do over the next uh, couple months is we're going to go through this book just a, a few verses at a time and be refreshed in the gospel. The gospel, guys, is not just for non-Christians. I don't know if you guys kind of grew up in a church environment like that, or later, when when, when the pastor got to talk about the gospel, that's when you knew you should clean up your stuff, right? Because that's the end, and this isn't really for you. This is for those people that don't know him. You know, whenever he started talking about the cross, you go, oh yeah, I needed to know that. That was how I got in, but that has nothing to do with me now. The gospel isn't just for non-Christians and new believers. It is for them, but it's also the way of the Christian life. It's a deepening understanding of the gospel, is what the Holy Spirit uses to transform you from the inside out. This is the way that God frees his people. In fact, most of the problems and struggles we have as believers is because we fail to grasp and believe and apply the gospel. We think we know it, but we don't know it deeply enough. And so, you know, growth in the Christian life turns out to be a continual re-exposure and renewal and deeper understanding of what Jesus has done for us. You know, because a lot of times we think that somehow, you know, the gospel is what got us in, we trust in Jesus, and then from there we just need to know some, like, really deep spiritual principles and try real hard. But it turns out that the energy to move forward in the gospel is those little explosions of joy every time you see what Jesus did for you. You know, it's a way, as far as it, my dad's a mechanic, but I know nothing about cars. But that's what I understand of how a car works, right? little injection of gas, little explosion, you move forward, right? That's the way it works in the Christian life. A little injection of the gospel, a little explosion of joy, and suddenly you want to obey his commands, right? It's what moves us forward. And so that's what we're after this time. We're after a deeper grasp of the gospel. Because, guys, we walk around with gospel amnesia most of the time. For the next few months, we're going to be doing this, and I just want you guys to pray. I want you to pray for those who are among us who have never received the gospel. You guys know it's possible to be in a church for a long time and never really grasp what's going on. <laughs> it's possible, you know. There's a spiritual thing there. I remember with my boys, we were, you know, trying to emphasize when they were young the gospel, was sitting at the dinner table, and we're like, tell them what the gospel is. Tell them that it's all Jesus, and then you say, okay, how do we get saved? And like being good people. And you're like, wait, we just talked about this. Like, Jesus did it all. If we trust in him, we'll be saved. Like, that's how we, you know, that's how we're, we're saved. We get to go to heaven. Okay, how do we go to heaven? We got to do the right things. I'm like, okay, let's do this again. You know, and these are smart kids, right? What is it? It's a spiritual thing, right? There's a spiritual barrier there, right? And so be praying for those of us who have not yet received it. Be praying for those here who are lacking gospel joy. Because the gospel is It has been given to us to save us and to give us joy in this life, a joy that changes us. And a lot of believers do not enjoy it. And it's the saddest thing in the world, right? Okay, so be praying for those who lack gospel joy here. Um, be praying for those who sit and have sat in church their whole lives, and they're Christians, but they, they just don't get the gospel. You know what I mean? They can, they can know the gospel in such a way that it's saved them, but it, it just doesn't fire them up. It hasn't become an engine in their lives, right? It's kind of like when, um, you know, I don't use vending machines as much as I used to, but uh, my understanding, in old ones, is you put a quarter in, right? Several quarters now. Put a quarter in. You know how sometimes it gets hung up? You know, so you like body slam that thing, and they're very heavy, so you really have to do it to kind of get it to click. That's what we're praying for, guys, for you, is that you've received the gospel, but something hasn't clicked to where the joys come from it, and we need to pray for that. And guys, be praying who you could share the gospel with, this amazing message. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do that, to shake us up, right? Body slam our hearts so that there's some clicking of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.